Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce. I want to supply you with an interview with Dr. James Cantor, who is a leading researcher in sexuality, specifically atypical sexuality. In this discussion, we talk about the way that the brain informs what one is attracted to. And James Cantor goes on to make some propositions about how we should be treating or at least viewing people with atypical sexualities, specifically sexualities that have a damaging effect to other people. If they are implemented or acted upon. So here you go. Get ready for a crash course in what it means to be a sexual being. I think you're going to be titillated, if not made a little bit uncomfortable. This is great stuff. Here you go. Thanks for taking time out of um, what is, I'm sure, a very busy schedule to speak with me. Uh, it uh, does feel like I end every day with a to-do list as long as the one I started. Oh, really? Jeez. Wow. Um, so do you mind, like, I don't know if this is a improper question, but what are you up to? Do you, is it just a private practice and you do speaking tours and stuff like that? Or uh, It's kind of funny. I ended up doing absolutely everything that I used to be doing before CAMH, but I've cut CAMH out of the loop. What's CAMH? Uh, CAMH is uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. It's the okay. uh, hospital where I was a full-time staff person. Okay. Uh, but I live like an academic. I also had an academic appointment, which is free, editorial assignments and reviews, which are free. Mm -hmm. I go around giving talks for free. <laughs> uh, and so I just kind of continued to do that. But instead of CAMH paying my salary where I supervise students and see you know, the, the occasional uh, 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 client of my own, mm -hmm. Now I'm running my own clinic where I have people, you know, that I train in who are seeing the clients. And that's where my money comes from as I continue to, you know, get working on wow. the books I want to work on. And so, so as I say, what I'm doing is exactly the same as before, but I've cut Ken H out of the loop <laughs> for twice. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, not quite the topic, really. I was planning on uh, on going into, but it's uh, uh, what has happened to that hospital since it be uh, since it was the Clark Institute, and it was such a a brain bank. It was a uh, mm. uh, it just had a critical mass of the world's top sex researchers all under one roof. And when you have that, it, uh, it's uh, when you have four, five, and six, it's more than four, five, and six times an individual one. That that kind of synergy and magnetism mm. is irreplaceable. Uh, it's what put CAMH on the scientific map, and they've let it evaporate. I, I was the oh, last okay. scientist that, that left. It really, the things mm -hmm. that I went there for ceased to be there. So it just made no sense. I, I, I'm there for intellectual strength, not money. I was perfectly happy to get an academic salary instead of a private salary for 20 years. But then the sacrifice just stopped making sense. It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, producing the kind of stuff. It didn't have the reasons that I went there for. Uh, but I'm now lucky enough that I'm uh, uh, senior enough my, uh, in my career that uh, I no longer do need a hospital in which to be established as legitimate. You know, I, I'm still called upon to be a, 
to be collaborator, to be uh, uh, to provide expert testimony or information mm. to various court proceedings. And uh, uh, and I'd like to take advantage of the media, uh, the stuff that I did. You know, I did on the public dime and there's a reason for that. You know, I did it for public good. Yeah. Uh, and part that scientific information can get out to the public or any decision maker, the better, best we all are. I mean, that, yeah. that's, you know, uh, that's my... The- if I can use that word in a positive, that's my privilege as a scientist is I have a position to be able to communicate, you know, something to help out, you know, especially yeah. people who paid for it. Has the research on on sex stalled since the dissolution of that brain bank at the KMH? Uh well, it, it, that's hard to dissociate from just the individual people no longer doing their, you know, individual kinds of uh, kinds of research. Uh, but the uh, the problem uh, was more evaporation than anything else. It was benign neglect. Uh, the people who left, you know, left at retirement age. There was nothing unusual. Oh, okay. Ray Blanchard's retirement at age sixty-five. Uh, Ken Sucker was, you know, already past sixty-five when uh, when they got rid of him, you know, to their own uh, mm. uh, to their own chagrin. Uh, and you know, so my exit was the last of them, uh, last of them, which I just kind of, you know, did on my own. It, once I was able to set myself up in private practice, then then I no longer, as I say, I, I no longer needed them in my equation, in the equation of my career. So that was the end of that. Uh, but they were simply not interested in doing top research when it is potentially controversial. They just okay. didn't have political will to want mm. to do that. So when they replaced, uh, 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 as advertising, I think my position is still open. I don't think they've replaced it yet at all. Uh, uh, they're uh, not replacing them with people in the same uh, in the same field. So as I say, it was uh, allowed to just evaporate by n- benign neglect. It neither had the, uh, the chutzpah to say this is a problem and we're not going to do it, nor that it had uh, did it have the temerity or chutzpah to say no, we are going to keep this going. It's one of the yeah. strongest, you know, uh, one of their the nature of their international reputation. Yeah, uh, it so seems not- like at this point, uh, with the way that the internet operates and with the way in which different issues around sexuality are becoming more and more uh, central to the public eye, um, it seems like now's the time when an institute like that would be very necessary to really kind of, I don't know, maybe show us the way or we need individuals in this field to be out there speaking to us to to help uh, the society at large to kind of understand what a paraphilia is, I guess, if that term is something that you agree with using, and and what's the difference between a healthy sexuality or abnormal sexuality, and especially with the trans issues and with young people being uh, more and more, I don't know, shuttled or accepted as being trans. Like, there's a lot of questions around, like, should we be intervening? with that? How do we diagnose that? And uh, just as one example. Uh, that, that's actually several examples. And there's, you know, an enormous amount to unpack just inside that. Uh, but at the root of it, I think you hit the, uh, the central point exactly on its, uh, on its head. Because there are so very many controversial issues in sexuality, you know, that can greatly, greatly impact individuals, their families and friends around them, society at, at large, the only way to come to any kind of reasonable policy or decision on any of these issues is to know what the facts are. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, be exactly because we're in such a hyper-polarized, tribal extremist mentality, nothing subtle is getting discussed. Mm. And these are subtle, profound, complicated problems which have multiple right answers competing mm. with each other. You know, extremism is not going to lead to anybody's health or anybody's benefit of it. And we have people who are, you know, traditional political allies, you know, on, you know, decide your place on the spectrum, even at war with each other, calling yeah. themselves, you know, at opposite ends of the political spectrum. It, it, it's really, it's gotten very, very bizarre. Uh, and as I say, I think you hit the nail exactly on the head. The final, ultimate citadels of open discussion, knowledge, I don't care how much it upset, how offensive, what the idea is, we entertain all ideas, crucible kind of a place, were the universities. Mm. And now that that now that you know for reasons that are now beyond my knowledge to for individual ones but now that there is a culture of cowardice amongst administrations that that's not possible and uh even though sexuality is a a very very small field by numbers of people you know by emotion it comes before you know mm. the english department uh, everybody mm. has an opinion on it, and everybody has something to say uh, to say about it. But uh, this field, again, despite being small, is kind of the canary, or has mm. long canary in this coal mine. If there's going to be an issue which is uh, uh, which uh, uh, which will unite people against free speech, it's going to be sex of one way or another, and that's not a leftist or a rightist thing. It's an extremist thing. Extremists on both ends of the spectrum are perfectly willing to sacrifice everybody's free speech in service of whatever their political extremism is. Whether somebody's saying you can't do it, I'm offended as a religious person, or you can't do that, I'm offended as a, a, a pick a leftist minority. These days, again, the transgenders are getting the most uh, uh, the most language, and all of a sudden, it's just my side, your side, and if you disagree with anything exactly as I believe it, you're from that other side. Yeah. Campuses are not permitting a place where you know we can ask questions. It, it's uh, and you know to me this is uh, this is yet another issue on old ground. This is not a new idea confronting us. It's that uh, uh, in a university, say, or as a scientist or any scholar, really, I have to be willing to entertain the existence of no God, no matter no matter how offensive a religious person might find that. There is no two ways around that. If somebody wants to participate in a religious institution where you know free speech is limited that way, fine. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, but now it's coming, you know, more left than it used to be, and it's showing uh, cracks and fissures and faults in I won't say the left establishment, but amongst a lot of people who think themselves as liberals, but really they're what I call pseudo liberals. They're just saying this is my tribe. This is how I rebel against the generation before me. But mm. if you actually ask anybody to articulate the abstract principle that they're fighting for in a way that they have not been told what the answer is by whatever blog they read, mm. mm -hmm. they're unable to do it. In fact, there are instances where yeah, some unusual situation uh, emerged and I you know, posed the question to a, a, a friend of mine, a, a, a talented uh, uh, a talented social worker. It was about uh, people who. Yeah, sometimes I call themselves females. Uh, she sometimes they, uh, sometimes they say trans women, and sometimes there are trans women who don't let females call themselves females, even though the females call themselves females. It's uh, one of those bizarre dynamics. Mm. Anyway, so uh, I asked this a, a friend of mine a question. He said, "Oh, I'll have to ask this 
female friend of his. And all I could think is, you have to have permission. You can't think on this your own. It's a matter of if somebody in your tribe says it. Mm -hmm. You have to go to the authority. Right. Wouldn't you kind of want to develop an old idea, check it with? It's perfectly fine to have input, ask questions, wonder, you know, is there something to Mm -hmm. the history? But you have to be told what the correct answer is rather than deduce Hmm. it from basic what are your principles here. Yeah. Uh, there are very, very few people able to do it. And uh, uh, now, even though the other term has become hackneyed, it's just as true. It's just pure virtual signaling. It's people showing what tribe they're in to make themselves look good and mm-hmm. to their peeps in their own tribe. And this this sort of behavior crops up, especially around any sort of charged issue. And sexuality, like you said, is no matter how we put it, it's always going to be a charged issue. How as a sexologist, is that? Is that the proper term? Or like, or somebody who studies sex? You, yeah, no, it's a perfectly fair term. We don't okay. use it a lot in North America, but it's very common in Europe. Okay. Um, how, how do you, how do we, what's your framework when you approach sex? Like, what are the ground rules? How do you look at this? And how do we, first you get a martini? <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> sex, I start with a cocktail. I okay. <laughs> Well, what's the framework um, to be objective about this? Like, do we, how do we frame what sex is in in order to start to have this discussion? I hate to make a discussion about me, but uh, whenever I talk about this kind of thing with students, I have no great wisdom to impart unto people where, you know, just do as Yoda did and you will, you know, learn the nature of the force. All I can ever really do with students and the ones where everything has worked out that I share my mistakes. I tell what people I fucked up. I tell people what it is that I fucked up. Don't make the same mistake. Find newer and better mistakes of your own. Mm -hmm. But don't waste time on the ones that I did. Okay. Uh, Now, how I came into all this really was the other way around. I didn't start studying sex and then figure out I have to be objective. I was just a science, nerdy-minded, objective kid by nature since I could watch Star Trek. It was just, uh, I was just a science nerd. And it was almost, you know, in this, you know, childlike way of imitating Mr. Spock in my head, that became, uh, that became a way of of thinking that by sheer coincidence, I I had some talent uh, at Mm. Uh, the other part, really, that just made me able to function in uh, in this bizarre world is being gay. Growing up gay, you know, closeted at first, going through, you know, very usual stories. There was nothing bizarre or unusual about you know, uh, my coming out story, except it was, mm-hmm. as a kid, very, very difficult in the orientation mm-hmm. of your life. No pun intended. And uh, one, uh, 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 m- how I came out of that process was with a self-confidence that when I know what the fucking truth is, it doesn't matter if everybody disagrees with me. Hmm. I just had to learn to grow that skin in order to survive the childhood and adolescence and young adulthood that I did. So it was not really, it really had nothing to do with science. It was a willingness, and I'm from New York, which helped, stand by the evidence. The popularity contest Hmm. means nothing to me. 
you know, it was, I'm sure, a defense mechanism on my part. You know, if society was going to reject me, I was going to keep them uh, keep them at distance. Yes. So really, uh, as I said, there's nothing magical that I can convey to somebody. I just, by fluke, grew up with a set of experiences that enabled me to grow the skin to just say, this is where the evidence is, like it or not, sorry, and to be able and willing to suffer the slings and arrows. Yeah. You know, where, where the truth was more important, yet more important to me than the popularity was. And how did you end up focusing on sex then in your intellectual life? Uh, again, more coincidence than anything else. I was studying to be a computer science kind of guy, math kind of guy. Hmm. Uh, although there were math nerds much, much more talented and dedicated to this than, the, uh, than I was. Uh, but again, by sheer fluke, I became uh, one of those resident assistants in Canada. They call them doms, you know, just kind of peer counselor working in the dorm, you know, helping people work out, you know, d- d- develop their own environments and academic yeah. lives and so on. Uh, and I found out that I was really enjoying that more than I was enjoying my studies. So, you know, ding, maybe I should switch to psychology and go into this, you know, uh, professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those days, you know, this was late 80s, early 90s, you know, openly gay you know, psychologists were still quite a rarity. There were schools which did not let you in if you were gay because that was still deemed either a psychopathology or they were a religious school and that had precedence. As I, as I say, you know, I grew up in this era and at this time where very different from what we're accustomed to now. Anyway, so that was my, my initial, uh, 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 th- that was now the change of course that I was planning. Uh, but how I ended up back in science one more fluke, nothing I could tell anybody else to do. The last year of a training program in clinical psychology is the internship. You have to find, you know, some program, you know, a vague interest to you where you can, you know, work clinically in, uh, in that year. Mm-hmm. Well, there were very few doing anything related to sex or homosexuality or anything, any place. But one of those places was then the Clark in the middle of becoming CAMH. That was the very year of the okay. hospitals. Uh, so uh, they had a uh, half. Uh, uh, I was going to t- their uh, internships have two halves. One half was in their gender identity clinic. Aha! Perfect for what I was planning on for my career. But you need two halves. The other half was their sexual behaviors clinic, which I didn't really think anything about. But at least it was sex related. That was that. But once I got there and I saw the kind of research that uh, that was going on, oh, this is fascinating. Hmm. And I've lost track of the coincidences. They were just trying to start a program of doing brain research on the sex offenders. Okay. When I was switching from computer science to psychology, you know, I needed some practical experience in order to get into a graduate program because I didn't have an undergraduate degree in it. You know, I was taking the basic courses, but I needed practical experience. So I got a job as a, uh, as a research assistant. They trained me to do neuropsychological testing, which is what Mm. their thing was. So I was coming into this place with a background in sex and background in neuropsychology exactly when they were about to start a neuropsychology project. I was the only one who spoke both languages. Okay. Yeah. All right. 20 years later. (laughs) Now you know all about the brain. It was just keeping an open mind. And the lesson that I do give to students, because, you know, nobody could plan a course like that. Uh, is for people to uh, uh, value uh, uh, cross-pollination. 
when I run into other people who have, you know, who have also kind of made some substantial contribution, it's not necessarily who's smartest or who, you know, a lot of it is cross-pollination, bringing tools or techniques from one field and just keeping your eyes open. So in another field, oh, wait a minute, that reminds me of that. Okay, yeah, yeah, tying things together rather than necessarily forging new ground. Instead of just how it's always been done in that field, come in with a different point of view. So... Uh, I guess this is a huge question, but um, what do we know about the brain's relationship to sexual orientation and how does that knowledge help us understand what is uh, what is something that's unhealthy, unhealthy sexuality or normal sexuality? I mean, I, I don't know how I'm trying to I, I, figure You just out. gave three different terms that I have. Don't even that. work. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know it's not that they don't work. But and there are different people use these words in different ways. All of them are correct. The important part is everybody's using them the same way at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you said uh, sexual orientation. Fine. Some people mean sexual orientation mean are you into male or female? Period. Other people mean sexual orientation to mean your core basic sexual interest pattern, which you're born with and will stay the same throughout life, no matter what and no matter what you're into. That is, some people have a narrow definition, some people have a broad. Both are legit definitions, but in order to talk about it, we just need to be using the same one. Uh, you said normal. Fuck if I know. Uh, it's okay. it, relative to, you know, whatever scale. And we can be relative to whatever scale anybody wants to talk about which one counts as normal is a judgment call. All right, I'm entitled to a judgment call. Every listener, you, everybody's entitled to a judgment call. But because the word is such a lightning rod, I tend to avoid it because then everybody just starts talking about the judgmentalism and the topic itself gets lost. And uh, that was the first and third word you were. I forgot the word you used. (laughs) Sexual orientation. And well, I mean, I'm trying to get um, a framework. I guess I'm trying to work towards a framework uh, where we can start to talk about, let's just say, rare sexualities. And because sexuality is so charged and that charge ends up ha- forming a lot of judgment against, like, let's say the classic example is homosexuality was yep. pathologized. And, yep. and there's been a lot of work in the LGBT uh, community or the LG community towards uh decoupling the pathology from the orientation and there's a lot of different language and thought that's gone into uh, framing how one is made up sexually towards other people um, that might use psychological research to to show like basic fundamental this is how somebody is Um, the brain is like this Uh, so there's the lg part and then there's the b part the bisexuality part but when we get into trans that's a whole other field of research that people are still grappling with. And there's a lot of uh, argumentation that I don't think is really going anywhere because really we don't have the tools yet on a societal level to really talk about what it is to be trans. And then what put you on my radar was the P that people want to put in that, the, the pedophilia, which, which is even more difficult for people to, to really understand and to even start to have a conversation about. So I, I guess I'm just trying to, to, Get, uh, get from you tools on how do we start to talk about sexual orientation, if that's the proper term, in order to have uh, beneficial discussions and then to figure out what to do with regards to people of these different orientations. Excellent. 
let's use, uh, it sounds like the, uh, let's go for the precision. And what I like about a format like this instead of Twitter is that we have the leisure to yeah. do that. Uh, so for the precise, the way I like to use them and the way the science now uses them, uh, sexual orientation tends to be now the broader term, meaning basic sexual interest pattern that is essentially innate and unchangeable, that people are now using it in general in the broad way. Could we uh, reduce that into what turns me on? Is that a proper just like colloquial? Um, no, because that would also include relative minor preferences and tastes where if somebody doesn't have that characteristic, it doesn't matter so much. Okay. Like blondes versus brunettes, skinny versus muscular, you know, changes over time. Yeah, it can change over time. Well, sometimes does, sometimes doesn't. But it doesn't have that. If it's not a brunette, I'm not interested. Where male versus female, if it doesn't have the right equipment, I'm not interested. You know, or in the case of uh, 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 pedophiles, has pubic hair, does not have pubic hair, you know, breasts, not breasts. Okay. It's a deal breaker. Yeah. So the, the minor preferences, there's no good evidence to say that those are, that, that those are really this, at the same level of preference. OK. Uh, oh, and uh, some scientists actually would define that in the other way, uh, the other way around. Rather than it being a lack of attraction to, it's actually the existence of repugnance towards. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a, a phobia, rather, or an avoidia, rather than a feeling. Right. To most men, the idea of a penis in their face is not just neutral. You know, it's not yes. like, you know, a thigh. You know, it's repugnant. You know, so it's yes. not. So the blonde versus brunette, it's not. All right, you yeah, have a practice, okay. but it's Interesting. not repugnant. Okay. Uh, or at least that's not the the typical reaction. That that's usually, I think, the useful way to divide uh, those. So so if we say sexual orientation, and uh, and we divide that then into homosexuality, mm -hmm. and very for the past generation or so, until very recently, the term sexual orientation caught on only because people didn't like saying the word homosexuality. Uh, okay, yeah. Right. It was a naughty term for a long time. So the term was stigmatized, so this neutral term came okay, out. Yeah, okay. It also covered by, which is, uh, as we'll get to later, a topic unto itself. Anyway, so for the sexual orientations, we have homosexuality, and the other primary branch of them are medically or scientifically what we call the paraphilias. Okay, yeah, all right. These people who are interested in something, again, very, very unlike what regular everyday people are, and where to draw the line, there can be some reasonable debate. Some are pretty clear, right down to the brain evidence. Some are, we suspect, but nobody's actually done the brain studies yet. And some, all bets are off, I wouldn't be surprised, no matter what, uh, what, the, outcome, uh, uh, what the outcome is. What we do know is that these two branches differ not just because of their political positions. Each of them is different from a regular, everyday, typical brain. The heterosexual brain. But they differ in completely different ways. Hmm. Exactly. Now, when I say that, it shouldn't be of any, you know, it shouldn't be of any surprise. If I say somebody has a brain difference, the next question is, well, where? The brain does, you know, everything. You know, a difference here is not the same as a difference here. Yeah. You know, this does language, this does handedness, this does motor control, this does, you know, inhibition. So mm -hmm. saying a brain difference, right. So both have, both are neurological, both are inborn, both seem to be permanent, but unrelated to each other. Okay. They just involve different kinds of, 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 uh, Exactly. One is a matter of wiring that picks male versus female. One is a wiring that picks 
all of the other characteristics. Huh. Old, young, old, young, whether I want to touch what, you know, how I respond to when I see something, you know, what anatomy is it that I'm hot, you know, that I'm hot for. And if these other things, you know, are not typical, then the whole network is responding, oh, hot, go for that one. When the rest of us would know that's that's kind of repugnant. Yeah. So I asked. Okay. So as I say, these are fundamentally different. They're both reasonably called sexual orientations because, as I say, they are innate and unchangeable. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, you know, pe- to non-scientists, and I can't blame, you know, non-experts for this, to a person who has only seen any of this through a uh, lens of stigma, mm-hmm. oh, this is putting the homosexuals together with the sex criminals again. Right. Well, no, that's not it at all. And there actually is a, if you want to understand, you know, the pattern of these, yeah, no, there is a fundamental break and there's a, you know, we need some term to say unusual, mm-hmm. you know, to departure from typical, atypical, pick, you know, pick your term. Okay. But there is, you know, a scientific, non-judgmental, apolitical reason to say, you know, typical and all right, that's our reference point. It's 97% of the population. What? And we're not going to take that? Right. Normal now comes with judgment and saying you should be in that 97%. Yeah, that's, that's a very small difference that has a huge implication when you enter into a public uh, discourse or a political discourse. The politicians are, of course, very numerous and the scientists very few. So when a <laughs> scientist comes in with scientific language and scientific accuracy, the last thing, uh, the last way that anybody interprets us is as a scientist. Yeah. As I say, that, that's that's you know, fault of as much medium well, maybe even more medium than, than uh, uh, it's a fault in the medium, not the message. Yeah. So before we step off into the paraphilias, um, can you give us a, a breakdown of what we understand about the difference between a heterosexual and a homosexual um, person or mind specifically? Sure. Uh, and uh, let me rule out specifically the bisexuals, which are a set of stories unto themselves. And bisexual okay. is not. Yeah. And it's not a single thing either. There, there are several different things that can lead a person to, to identify or feel that they're uh, bisexual, but they're not identical to each other. Uh, for homosexuality, it's turned out to be remarkably straightforward. A generation rejected the idea, but study after study after study from DNA to brain research, the whole thing has turned out to be how masculinized versus feminized the brain is. Okay, so there's an innate masculinity or femininity to the brain. Correct. And it comes down to, you know, and all kinds of behaviors that show all kinds of uh, sex differences. For just about every sex difference that has been identified between men and women, uh, gay men and lesbian women have been shown to be shifted a little bit in the other direction, or at least not as differentiated as uh, heterosexual men and heterosexual women. So it really does seem to be a, a literal, you know, neurological intersex mm-hmm. is, is, you know, what the research shows over and over again. Uh, that story, the bottom line to that story is that that uh, the men's story is simpler than the women's story. Hmm. For men in general, and I, I'm overstating this a little bit to, to make the point, but basically uh, men are kind of into it, not into it. No nature of the romance or the relationship or the expectations for the future is going to make a difference between whether the guy has a hot has the hot sport. It's really it's that's that hot or not. Very simple. 
where there is room for more fluidity amongst bio females, uh, where male brains are very, very attuned to looks. The female brain is much more open. This is a combined decision of her emotions, her state of being, you know, her relationship with the other person, expectations for the future. What will my yeah. friends think? That, that's a larger proportion of her brain's decision-making process. And because, you know, so because that's a larger part, you know, the, bio, the biology of the other one is a smaller part. Yeah. Where it's pretty all or nothing for the males. Yeah. So, so because other things go into the equation for women, just a little bit of fluidity goes a long way, if you pardon okay. me. Uh, so uh, the story is more complicated for uh, uh, for some, maybe even a, 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 a many women, where for men it is not entirely, but pretty close to dichotomous. Interesting. So yeah, it, basically men are simpler than women, <laughs> like, like uh, on a neurological level. Uh, uh, when it comes to this, we're designed a little bit, you know, the overlap is enormous, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the rule of thumb is men are a little bit biased towards navigating the physical world, and women are a little bit biased towards navigating the social world. Okay, yeah. But of course, there's, there has to be a lot of overlap because we all live in a yes, physical exactly. and a social the, the world. Two famous, you know, big overlapping... Uh, if, if I said uh, men are taller than women, nobody would bat an eyelash. But if I say, here's one person, five foot seven, male or female, yeah. it's easy. Yeah. Right. And most people are in the, right, until you start talking about the extremes, you know, now yeah. we, there are very few women over 6'2", there are very few men yeah. under 5'2". Right. So there we can yeah. see, and those are just, you know, various statistical ways that, that we can look uh, look at things. This might be a total tangent, but it seems like, and I'm not professional at all i just need to preface this i'm just uh, learning and consuming information as fast as i can it seems that there is a small contingent of diagnoses of young trans people where it seems like a misdiagnosis like they're they're taking uh let's say a gay boy and assuming uh through socialization or for, through misdiagnosis or through self-diagnosis that they are in fact female and they go through the process of changing the body to match the brain um, what are your thoughts on that? Is that is that a reaction to deep-seated homophobia, that it's easier to imagine a male brain uh, to conform the, the female brain to a, a female body than it is to just accept that this male-bodied, male bra uh, female-brained individual is just basically homosexual and attracted to men? Uh, there have been some people who have wrote some things which are awfully homophobic, but I don't think that's the same subgroup, the same vocal subgroup that we're hearing from now, hmm. uh, who are in generally, uh, if anything, they're the other extreme and they are going to do, you know, every politically correct, fashionable thing and they are going to turn up the volume with every speaker available to them. Uh, I, I, it's not, I, I don't think they're, they're motivated by homophobia at all. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, however, a completely independent group, usually religiously uh, uh, motivated, uh, not very often in North America. It does happen in some other countries and in some other cultures where transsexuality is okay, but homosexuality is not. Mm. Because homosexuality is forbidden in, pick your holy book, but transsexuality is never mentioned. So if is deemed that new sex, well, they're having sex as that new sex. That doesn't count as homosexual. 
Interesting. So within those societies, and you know, and, and uh, these are uh, largely in the Middle East and uh, and in other areas. So within the context of those cultures, as I say, that does happen, uh, and it's grotesque. And I think we, you know, uh, to the extent that the international community uh, can react, I think it should. But I think that's an independent phenomenon from what we're seeing in North America and uh, and Europe. I think uh, the people who are pushing it here. Uh, not only are they not uh, not homophobic, I think they're very well intended. I, I think they are genuine. I think they sincerely believe that they are doing the best for these children. And they, uh, they're doing what they think is the modern version of what was the gay rights movement a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the set of facts are completely different. Oh, it, yeah. It's as if when uh, 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 if the only uh, tool you have in the toolbox, every problem looks like a nail. You know, they're just it's, uh, these people, they're just borrowing the same language and arguing by metaphor to show that this is really the same as that. Unless you check the facts, hmm. this is not just as just like that. You know, there are certain analogies uh, to it. Of course, there are lessons to be learned, of course. But what's going on now is really, it's, as I said before, this is not liberal behavior. This is pseudo-liberal behavior, just kind of dressing up in, in uni- liberal uniforms and then demanding that the genuine principled liberals just get on side or you will be expelled from the tribe. Mm-hmm. To, to specify, you, um, you're talking about the difference between homosexuality and, let's say, gender dysphoria or something like that. Like there's a different diagnosis between uh, a homosexual and somebody who is, I don't, I don't. Uh, gender dysphoric somebody who who will is upset to be in the body who has the problem with being in a certain body as opposed to being attracted um or having uh, more effeminate uh brain structures and and social uh proclivities uh that that's uh the usual encyclopedic narrative but it's really a Frankenstein of several other concepts getting cobbled together, not the way that nature put them together. The way the evidence suggests is, as I said, we have, you know, basic sex difference, you know, male, female, some people are, you know, shifted a little bit less and they're more likely to be homosexual in whichever direction. Mm-hmm. For people for whom that is a little bit more extreme, you know, they're even less differentiated. That is, you know, they're more toward, pushed towards the other side. That's one of the major motivators for genuine transsexuality. Mm-hmm. Those people's brains, and again, this has been shown also in the brain uh, scan research, that the people who are, for no better way to describe it, so gay, they really are better off living as women, or they're happier living as women, or as lesbians, they are so butch, they really are happier living as, uh, as males. Yeah. That is, as I say, one of the large motivators for transsexuality. Mm-hmm. And it is a very close cousin uh, to homosexuality. In fact, it's a reasonable place to ask, you know, although we can tell the difference between heterosexual and homosexual pretty easily, as I say, to a het guy, you know, a penis in the face is you know, not neutral. Uh, but the difference between homosexuality and this type of transsexuality 
that's a much tougher one. There's no sharp line there. Mm. So, uh, so the, some people, as I say, and that often is the result of how young were they, how supportive was the environment around them, do they imagine themselves with a heterosexual husband, do, you know, and, and that very often is they just want to fit in with the world around them, and the best way they fit in with the world around them, you know, for some people in some society, that can change. As I say, the line between heterosexual and homosexual is strong, but it is large. But the difference between regular homosexuality and what is still called homosexual transsexuality, yeah. that's much more different. Large gray area. Right. That's no longer a difference of what I'm attracted to, which are opposites. That's now a question of how I want society to treat me. Which is now society is involved in that decision in a way what I'm attracted to, whether I like it or not, that's how I'm attracted, you know, that's what I'm mm -hmm. uh, attracted okay. Yeah. So that's one of the things that, so in that way, that type of homosexual, uh, that type of transsexuality is indeed, you know, kind of like extreme homosexuality or vice versa. Homosexuality is an incomplete form of transsexuality, depending on your point of view. But there is also another thing that can motivate people to want to change sex. And it's one of the paraphilias. And it only happens in biological men. All of the, where did I put them before? The, the, I had, that was my homosexuality yeah. branch, back to my paraphilia branch. Paraphilias really only happen to men, which to me is a clue. I think paraphilias are a side effect of something that happens during the masculinization process of the brain. All brains start as female, and then starting somewhere around week 10 to 12 is when the masculinization process, the androgens, testosterone, and so on kick in. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere in that chain of events of masculinization that I suspect, you know, the thing that changes the brain from be attracted to men and switches it to now be attracted to women. If that process doesn't go properly, instead of being attracted to women, it gets attracted to some other atypical combination of characteristics. Hmm. Thing, something goes unusual. Because only male brains go through that process is why I believe only male brains get paraphilias. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, there'll be a, 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 a report of there being a, a paraphilia in a female, very often lesbian, and maybe she went through a little bit of that masculinization process, uh, or sometimes it's masochism is the most common one among women which is a mystery. I'm not sure if it's a paraphilia for the same reason that men develop paraphilias or if it's, again, a side effect of the way that women's brains tend to social, uh, tend to navigate the social world. If it's something to do with that, I don't know. So one of these paraphilias, which I say only male, uh, male brains get, is instead of being attracted to women, they're actually attracted to themselves in the form of a woman. And we see a bunch of paraphilias like that. They're not attracted to the thing. They're attracted to being the thing. Like mm -hmm. men are into diapers. They don't want to touch the kid. They want to be the kid. They're attracted to being and emulating and living and being treated as that kid. So these pandas, and this is a sexual orientation as powerful and as potent as any of the rest of ours. And when a bio male when everything in his brain is responding sexually to the image of himself as female, for some people, cross-dressing is enough, and that's their masturbation fantasy, and they you know, live with it in a perfectly happy life. Others need it to the bone. Yeah. And, the, and very often they will off, you know, and otherwise mentally healthy, 
go for it. And they do, by and large, as I say, otherwise mentally healthy, do very, very well after, uh, after transition. These two groups have nothing to do with each other, completely different ideologies. It's, you yeah. know, now from a political point of view, that makes no sense. Politically, they both deserve the same rights. They both deserve to have things covered by their various uh, various medical insurance systems. Politically, morally, ethically, identical boat. But if you're a scientist, these are different phenomena. They have different trajectories. They're caused by different things. You know, they have different outlooks. And so when a, a, a client comes to me, I need to know which of these stories is true in order to help them, you know, provide the informed consent they know uh, they yeah. need to decide what to do. Yeah. Now then, the controversy of the moment is the kids who cross-identify. Yeah. Now, what we have already known for a million years, although everybody's forgotten it, is that those of us who grew up gay were by and large effeminate as children. That's why we were picked on. That's why we were bullied. You know, that's why we, I had to grow the skins in childhood that we did. Because, you know, that's how, you know, a feminine kid is treated. But if, however, and, and you know, and I remember this and many, very many gay men will remember the exact same thing as we were figuring out, well, I'd like these things, not those things. I'd like the things that the girls are doing, but I have no interest in the sports things that the boys are doing. And again, when you're six years old, the only way to understand that is some version of I must be a girl inside. Okay, yeah. What else? Well, you're a six-year-old, but how else do you know what the difference is? If I like the things they like, I must be one of them. Yeah. You know, well, on, on the outside, I'm not. So again, I'm a girl on the inside. Well, today say that. Boom. From puberty blockers. Or at least the reaction to it depends on the political orientations and the relative activism in whatever community uh, they are in. Uh, so of the, you know, and again, what we know from every single follow-up study ever conducted on trans kids, same result over, you know, the exact numbers jiggle a little bit, but it's, you know, 60 to 80%, 60 to 70% of them just turn out to be regular everyday gay kids when they grow up or lesbian kids when they grow up. Roughly a third of them do indeed want to transition. As I say, the, the line between het and uh, homo is very big. You know, these kids are not going to be regular everyday het kids when they grow up, you know, big, big departure to homo. But the line between homo and homo trans is very small. So as I said, about a third of them ish will want to uh, will continue to want to transition. So it's do very... we have do we have uh, solid evidence to be able to I mean, do we have the tools yet to be able to peer into somebody's brain and, and to see that, see how it's wired and say this is this is uh, this person's structured is uh, is more on the homosexual spectrum than the autogynephilia. Like, are we able to like recognize autogynephilia, like in imaging, or is there? Uh, no, nobody's tested for autogynephilia yet, and because it's such a political hot potato, I don't know what kind of people would volunteer for such a stuff. <laughs> very often, they you know want to sabotage, or they have a very uh, vested interest in what they want the. Uh, 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 want the study to find uh, there have been our uh, there have been several studies of adult transsexuals there haven't been any mri studies of uh child transsexuals and there haven't been any studies directly comparing the two different types of transsexuals hmm. however 
there have been studies studying one kind of adult transsexual, other studies studying the other kind of adult transsexual. Yeah. And when you look at the things that they found in the brain, the things are lining up with one is a paraphilia and one is, uh, is same as sexual orientation. But because, uh, and one is homosexuality. But I would be very surprised and nobody's been able to, it doesn't even make sense to try to differentiate the homosexual brain from the homosexual transsexual brain. If they differ, like I keep saying, in everything else we measure, they're, they're very, very close together. And so one would need enormous samples, even if there is an actual difference. For all we know, the only difference is the social reaction and there is no neurological difference. Mm-hmm. One of my good friends uh, who is a trans woman, uh, she hypothesizes that there's a, a category of paraphilia that, that's not actually a philia. She says that there's also like autoandrophobia. Like she, she expresses, and, and I've heard this in other uh, trans women, like a, a disgust or revulsion with the image of themselves as a man, which is stronger than the image of themselves as a woman. Is that uh, a distinction without a difference or is that a useful concept uh to at least in a clinical setting like setting start to work through the experience of that makes perfect sense uh it's uh and as a matter of fact it's almost it's the exact analogy of what i said when a bio heterosexual male has a penis in their face it's not neutral it's Right, and this is their version of the same thing, only it's their own genitals in their own face. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And right, is the there... that entire class of paraphilias is that, you know, it, it, it's, again, this hasn't been studied, but what I will wager in the future is that this is going to turn out to be a phenomenon of the mirror neurons, hmm. uh, which what... we know light up during sexual interaction. It's a way that it, it, it's one of the seats of human social instinct. But if they're not working exactly the same way, right, it seems to mm. be like short circuit where it's responding to it's responding to what the signal that it should be giving off in a circular, like I say, mirror neuron uh, kind of way. And so uh, to me, all of this just right, nobody's done the one study to tie it all together. But all of these puzzle pieces are huh. just right in front of us. So with regards to a sexual um, act between two people. Um, the mirror neurons are the parts of the brain that form a circuit where the desire can, like, how do they operate in a, oh, in a uh, sexual? That, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, we only know what they do. We have no idea how they work. They were only very recently discovered by pure accident, uh, by pure accident in one of those fascinating stories of science where just all of a sudden there's an entire new branch of neurology that opened which is making all of us how does this work how does it hasn't been figured out yet now a mirror neuron uh, the name mirror neuron is not like the name of motor neuron or glia or you know which are named by their particular form and function and we can put it under a microscope and say aha that's a whatever kind of brain cell it is uh, the mirror neuron, really, it's a nickname for a bunch of neurons that showed a very unusual and unexpected property. Uh, this was, it started as a relatively everyday experiment where the graduate student was, you know, working on a monkey brain. And, you know, and these are often done with the monkeys anesthetized, by, uh, but unconscious. You know, so the, the operator, you know, during these long surgeries and the skull is opened with the, the, the electrodes taking whatever uh, measurements it, uh, it was. Uh, it, it was a vision experiment. Lunchtime. So the research assistant is there, you know, pulls out an apple. The, the monkey's brain started lighting up. 
the part of the monkey's brain, oh, it was motor cortex. The part of the monkey's brain that lit up was the part that would have operated had the monkey itself been making that identical movement. Okay. But the monkey was not moving its arm. So this was not a motor neuron doing, you know, activating it, but it was active. The cortex or the it's visual cortex. When it saw the behavior rather than when it did the behavior. Yeah. How does a brain cell learn what its movement looks like? Right. Something's not working the way we think it works. And that now all of a sudden, oh, if that's true, now what about social behavior? What about learning? What about, you know, facial recognition? What about and all of a sudden? Da, 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 da. Yeah. We have to reorient everything we know to account for. What if this is involved in this? Right. But we can't get uh, all we know is that it's a. Uh, clump cluster of of, matter yeah. that connects lots of stuff to connects lots of stuff that all behave this way but we only know it's a mirror neuron because it's acting like a mirror neuron by when it's lighting up rather than than by some inherent characteristic or some extra protein or something that that's novel to it that that hasn't been discovered and that's now you know somebody else's branch yeah but... I, I was just the one who saw that was more cross-pollinating i was just sitting in whatever you know general talk somebody described it and i Right, and all of a sudden, that was my missing puzzle piece that made everything else fit together. So that's where in what way, like, how does the mirror neuron or even the concept of the mirror neuron help out sexology or the science of sex? Like, in... oh, I, uh, my idea is that I think it's uh, we know that the the mirror neurons light up during regular sex. It, it, it's one of the parts that people use you now when they're interpreting the behaviors of other people. Does he like this? Does she like that? You know, their reaction, it, it, it's part of, you know, that kind of like dancing. It's just that that part of intimate, deep interpretation of communication, although, you know, profoundly nonverbal communication in general. Uh, so we know that the, the same clump of neurons uh, are, uh, are involved in, uh, uh, in sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it makes all of these, you know, the autogynephilia, the autopedophilia, all of these uh, erotic target location errors, the usual name for these uh, paraphilic interests where people want to be in uh, another form rather than people who are attracted to an unusual form. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was just because I had these two ideas, you know, relatively in short term memory at the same time that I said, wait a second, yeah. these two all of a sudden, a bunch of things that made no sense before suddenly made sense, which to me is always right. <laughs> it makes me wish I was a young scientist again because that would be my next project. A whole trajectory ahead of you. Does it make any sense to ask, um, what is the function of sex? And and then to use like to use like some sort of answer to that question to then to understand why there's such a uh, variety of uh, variants in sexuality. Uh, beyond the heteronormative norm, right, or the the heterosexual norm, so we can understand like sex as the function of sex is to produce more human beings, but that does not encapsulate the function of sexuality, like and and why it would have in humans such a, a variance, uh, such a, a number of different ways that it's wired when you get into those percentiles of. I, I, I back up to the reproduction part. How many kids do people have? Now, how much sex do people have? Okay. That's the primary purpose? <laughs> okay, what's the point of eating? Okay, life. And from that, now let's discuss the history of every culinary form. Mm -hmm. Right. So what is its purpose is not really... 
its first biological function, you know, has is as you say reproduction, which goes back five billion years. That's not a particular surprise, and I don't think that that's a and I don't the story doesn't stop there, and I think people yeah. uh, 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 people stop there more out of politeness than than anything else. But like any of the basic human pleasures, you know, they are ancient. The only thing that makes humans any different from any of our preceding species is that we can do it in a more complicated way. Mm-hmm. And that every now and then something that we do for one purpose turns out to have had uh, to have another duplicate purpose as a side effect. Well, if the original problem goes away, we keep it around just for the side effect. The, the original purpose was lost. Uh, so, okay. uh, is uh, uh, so as I said, the, the purpose of eating is to you know well live. Does that mean it's not part of courtship? That there are no social behaviors around it? That there's no ceremony around it? Does it, yeah, it's on and on and on. Right mm-hmm. with sex. Uh, now the second most common one for people who do think it uh, think about it a little bit, or, or at least I would say long term couples, and maybe this is my couples therapist bias uh, coming out. People recognize it as important in bonding. It is a social function. You know, the sex, uh, makeup sex, morning sex, newlywed sex, sex that's only once in a while, but special occasions. You know, it's, they each convey hmm. important meanings. The one that does never, ever, ever gets talked about, but actually I think is uh, the one most closely associated with most of the problems behind sex is uh, sex or at least uh, masturbation as stress relief. It's soothing. Men especially masturbate to calm down. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a good that, piece of advice before making any huge decision. Not, what, no man has thought of this on his own. <laughs> but the only thing that makes me different is that I'm saying it out loud. Mm-hmm. But no, it is, again, it's sex therapist in me talking. Mm-hmm. And who come in calling themselves sex addicts, saying that, you know, they're masturbating hours and hours a day. The problem isn't an addiction. You know, it's not the sex drawing them in like cocaine. The problem is procrastination. Hmm. They're anxious about whatever frickin' task they need to do. So rather than sitting down in front of their computer and doing whatever it is, eh, they're on the web anyway, and they just start surfing. Yeah. yeah. Right. The problem is not the sex drawing them in. The problem is their work pushing them away. Mm. We can work on their various, you know, work habits, you know, and whatever it is about, you know, why is it they don't like about the task, you know, other lifestyle issues, you know, once we can attack the procrastination itself, right, this has nothing to do with sex. If it weren't sex, they'd have found something else. Uh, The other one is uh, uh, people, you know, engage in uh, uh, sex behaviors that that can get them in trouble. And that could be anything from cheating or uh, uh, if they have an unhealthy sexual interest or an interest in something that uh, that harms another person, they'll start, you know, uh, surfing porn about, you know, they'll start testing the boundaries. Uh, they do that when they feel the most stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of people with unusual sexual interests can keep themselves, you know, behaving, expressing only typical sexual interests unless they're un- under an enormous amount of stress. When they're feeling uh, uh, under those conditions, that's when they, you know, really, yeah, they're more likely to exactly, hmm. which usually, it, uh, which suggests entirely the opposite of how we work with sex offenders. Hmm. If, if we know nothing from criminology in general, what we do know is that people do the most desperate things when they feel the most desperate. Hmm. But all we ever do with sex offenders is give them reasons to be more desperate. Hmm. 
rather than integrating them into society, we reject them from it. And as I say, basic social psychology 101. A person with nothing to lose acts like nothing to acts like a person with nothing to lose, and all we do is make sure they have nothing to lose. Yeah, but with the, ca- the case, uh, you know, how mean we are. Yeah, but with the case of pedophilia, like there's a strong social um, purpose to uh, exiling the the pedophile from society. Um, uh, and they, they, the gut reaction is yes. Yeah, the, the, that's the gut reaction. So what what some of your research has has proposed is that that is actually not a way to deal with the problem that's the opposite way to deal with the problem and and there it's such a fraught thing to even broach i mean i guess you do it anyways but um how what do we need to understand about pedophilia so that we can actually go forward and, and figure out to solve like how to deal with this person because from what i've seen you write uh, is that it is it's a brain structure it's a way that somebody's wired and we can we can map that we can see that this is how somebody is designed but the the difference between pedophilia and homosexuality is that homosexuality can take place between two consenting adults the way that we think about childhood uh-huh. and the way that we and the, the the distinction, the number one rule that uh, that I always uh, give, because a, a lot of people slip over it, is pedophilia is not a synonym for child molestation. Okay. That's most people's primary mistake. Okay. They think we're talking about one when we're trying to address the other. Now, these are overlapping, and we need to talk about the area of overlap also, but these are dissociable ideas. Okay. Pedophilia is the basic sexual interest pattern in children. These are people who are turned on by kids through no fault of their own. They were born that way. It will not change. It doesn't. Even, it doesn't result from child abuse, then. Uh, no, there's no evidence to uh, to suggest that. And that was the going theory for a very, very long time, but there was never any evidence for it. It just mm-hmm. uh, made sense according to the basic psychological theories of those days, but mm-hmm. it was just taken for. As a matter of fact. Uh, people applied whatever popular psychological theory of that day as the explanation for pedophilia. Freud said it was because of relationships with parents. Skinner said it was because of, you know, random re- uh, 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 reinforcement contingencies. It's everybody just, but nobody had any evidence for it. Everybody just applied whatever theory they had to those particular behaviors. Uh, and then I say, now we have a stack of brain scans. That's that. Yeah, okay. Uh, so pedophilia is the actual sexual interest pattern born with by all ways that uh, we can tell and will not change by, you know, despite everything we have ever, uh, ever tried. Hmm. Child molestation is the actual crime. That's the harmful behavior that victimizes a child. That's the dangerous person we must deal with, you know, with the judicial system. Okay. Now, once we have and uh, so once we have those two separate, uh, now is the question: What do we do with these, and what do we do with these? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when we, now because people treat these as uh, as synonyms, people are saying just because you were born with this interest, we must throw you as if you committed crimes. Where no, no, they they didn't commit anything. These mm-hmm. people were born with what I can only call a curse. I mean, it's you know they didn't ask for this. They can't change it. Who can they tell? They can't tell their parents. They can't tell their family. In a lot of cases, they can't tell their therapist because they're afraid of getting reported. Yeah, there's no information on the web about it. There is nothing. As I said, there is nothing for, uh, for these people. But we expect very specifically that they do not, you know, give in to their motivation and become one of these. 
Now, the child molesters, as I say, those are the criminals, and there is, you know, they have foregone the rights, you know, they have harmed somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, some of them are motivated by pedophilia. They touched a kid because they're attracted to kids. But that's only a minority of them. That's most a minority. Of, yes, most of them are not pedophiles. <laughs> we call them surrogate offenders. They, you know, they prefer adults, but they used a kid uh, uh, for to, uh, to, uh, just to get off with. Uh, that's the most common pattern in uh, incest cases. The perpetrator, father, stepfather, whoever actually prefers adults, but there was a manipulable child in the uh, in the environment that they took advantage of. And those are, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of actual abuse cases. Now, this is not to say that, you know, pedophiles are zero risk. That's not true either. But they are a uh, minority of the actual cases of abuse. So as I say, we need to deal with the pedophiles who have never hurt anybody, and we need to, you know, help them. We could have ended up in that position as easily as they could have. Hmm. But it's different from the people who have actually touched a kid. Yeah. And the people who actually touched a kid, the ones who are pedophiles, I have to help them develop the skills for dealing with their pedophilia for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. The ones who are just general criminals, the ones who are antisocial, generally abusive, you know, sometimes they neglect children, physical abuse, sexual abuse, that's going to be a very different circumstance from, you know, there's no point in teaching him how to deal with pedophilia. He doesn't have pedophilia. Mm-hmm. He's got other psychological issues which, which led him to it. Mm-hmm. Again, from the victim's point of view, makes perfect sense that doesn't freaking matter. Yeah, from a political or a victim standpoint, yeah. Right, hmm. but if you actually want to fix the problem, <laughs> I have to understand where the problem is. Yeah. Right, now I can do that thick skin. I've been staring at these kinds of cases for now. Oh, the best uh, 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 analogy I have is that uh, somebody in my position is uh, has to be like... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, emergency surgeon in an ER, you know, a family gets wheeled in after a car accident, you know, which is a horrendous, you know, one is dead, others lost limbs. Anybody would lose their mind confronted with that kind of hope. But the surgeon can't. Mm-hmm. If the surgeon allows, the, if the surgeons allow themselves to get in, emotionally involved in what's right in front of them, they can't help the situation. Yeah. That, unfortunately, the way the political structure and the social media structure works... We just have the masses in hysterics. Yeah, that's yeah. not going to make a good decision for anybody. Yeah. So there's the the emergence. Like it just came on to my radar like a month ago of this MAP uh, community or the minor attracted person community. And uh, again, I think there was a tweet that you made. I, I'm going to botch it, quoting it, but you said that the P is something that is related to LGBTQ. Like there's a there's a there's a way of interacting with this community that can actually support them without necessarily celebrating this uh, their behavior or or even not even their behavior but their orientation and and that that's that's a fraught minefield because we are we do not we are not equipped yet socially to understand the difference between celebrating a sexuality or or understanding and accepting the person or, or sussing out the difference between the person and and the and that sexuality that that would be harmful if it was acted out um uh i don't say um i don't think that's the underlying issue actually hmm. uh that is uh Really what I think is so provocative about that idea is that it forces somebody to ask a much more fundamental question. Again, basic liberal principles. 
what does it mean to be in that alphabet soup? Hmm. Right. Does it mean celebrate? Are asexuals celebrating their asexuality? No, they're indifferent. They just don't want people to take for granted what their future lives are going to be. Do mm-hmm. people who are uh, intersex want to celebrate that when they were children, they needed extra surgery, they weren't sure what's... Right, well, it, it, so it's perfectly reasonable for anybody in whatever stripe of whatever rainbow to celebrate whatever thing they go nuts. But is that what puts somebody in the list? Okay. Right. It forces somebody to, well, a person who just doesn't want to give their first reactionary statement, which is, of course, you know, large, a large part of the world. But it means what exactly does it mean to be listed in whatever group? Now, of course, by virtue of the very bizarre place that I sit in society, I am exposed to every unusual sex practice under the sun and several, you know, which haven't, don't yet have names. So my point of view is let anybody do an, uh, whatever absolutely they can think of, dream of, experiment with, so long as they don't step on, you know, the rights or potential harm of anybody else. Now, for some people, that means you can do really just about whatever you want. You know, the common example today is uh, gay and lesbian. Now, but does that mean unlimited you can do whatever you want, wherever you want, with whoever you want? No, there are bounds. Uh, Somebody bisexual, okay, does that entitle them to cheat on a spouse of one sex with another? No, there are certain limited... uh, so and that down we go the list. All it means for any of the to me, this is just a list of the sexual minorities for whom we cannot take for granted the usual expectations of what their sexual and romantic lives are going to look like. For some people, they can express a great deal of it. For some people, only a little bit or only in fantasy. And for some people, not at all. Mm-hmm. But my real goal is once one can get over the emotional reaction and have a rational conversation about. P, all the other sexual minorities fall into place. Hmm. Once we can be rational with them, we can be rational about anybody. I'm just fast forwarding to the end page. <laughs> well, how do we be rational with that? Or well, first, conversely, first why are we ir- irrational about that? Uh, why are we irrational? It's, uh, this is now very quickly going to become a discussion about Trump. I mean, it's... I have no expertise about great social norms other than I have a good seat on the sexual part of it. But I think all of this is just a sub it is just the local manifestation of the great uh, polarization that we're seeing in society in general. Uh, I'm accustomed to, you know, 30 years ago when the only people on listservs and who had email were, you know, people with PhDs, university posts and so on. Uh, And so they got, you know, a disproportionate or privileged amount of the public conversation. Now that absolutely everybody has general access to it, people, you know, with absolutely no education or no background in any idea can seem just as loud or louder. And, you know, they are enormous in number. And it's by now exactly the opposite of how I grew up. It's decision making by popularity vote. How many retweets? How many people, how many likes did you get rather than the actual merit or evidence behind whatever the statement is? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's that's how we're irrational. Um, but if if we understand, I, I'm just trying to like get to the last page with you, or like into the footnotes at least. Um, how do we? Is there a way to to um, conceptualize what the pedophile is? 
um, and how they should be in society. So like what I saw on Twitter was that I think a lot of people got kicked off of Tumblr and then they, they appeared on Twitter and in their bios, the, the map community, minor attracted person and community, it was, it was so weird when I saw this was that I'm attracted to this age group. Like, like there's this whole identification thing, like, which is just, it's very shocking for people I, I, the majority of people to stumble upon that and say somebody is actually stating out in the open th- who they, wh- what age they are attracted to. Um, does that necessarily mean that they're out there looking for that or that they have no, a collection no, no, of porn no, of that? No, or no, what no, is no, the purpose no, of, of stating that? Uh, uh, no, they're saying they're coming out. To them, the, the, the meaning, the interpretation, the way that they're of the ones that I interact with. No, the intent of that is just to pull it all, put it all out there. And what's uh, the purpose of coming out? Uh, exactly the same it is for any other sexual minority and exactly the way that I would describe anybody anywhere else in the, uh, in the alphabet. That other people should not take for granted that their life is going to look like everybody else's and to, uh, you know, hmm. ask... To what extent are there reasonable accommodations? Can there be made for somebody in a position they didn't ask for, didn't change, and could have just as easily been uh, been any of us? Mm-hmm. Now, that does not mean sex with children. And uh, although there are people who do think that we should remove age of consent laws, you know, there, there do exist, uh, you know, radicals on that side that I will say, can I say mainstream pedophile community? Does that make sense? The, uh, the group that I like the, the, uh, the best, for whom I have the most respect and I support any way I, I can, are the virtuous pedophiles. Mm-hmm. They are explicit, you know, from mandate and statement on down, you know, always saying they are aware that, you know, they are saddled with a sexual interest pattern they can't act on that harm that, you know, sexually acting out with the child harms the child. They are not going to do that. There do exist other uh, as I say, radical or extreme groups who do believe that, you know, the rest of us are just interfering with the natural sexuality of children. Different story. That, you know, that, that they're deluding themselves at best, psychopathic at worst. You know, they're, they're okay. a different. The virtuous pedophiles, however, we are going to have pedophiles in society, whether we like it or not. And if there were a pill they could take to change, they would. But because we have no such pill and society is going to have such people, these are the ones we want. Mm-hmm. Now, the point of coming out is exactly what it was for any sexual minority group to help others who are looking for no role model, can't tell a therapist, nowhere else to turn to. Let them get in touch with the virtuous pedophiles when some kid figures out that he's attracted to younger. Mm-hmm. Let them get in touch with the virtuous pedophiles and not the other groups. So, right. So far as I'm concerned, kicking the good groups off. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Helping so the bad, it's crazy. So the the function of coming out and the function of connecting with other people who understand it from the inside out or who, people who are sympathetic, who like you, who who understand it from a clinical position, um, is to That's relieve. I mean, you don't have to collect the brain scans to know what the implications of the science are. I mean, I can tell somebody the science as we did in just a couple of sentences, but the logical implications of that does not take. It doesn't take an expert to see the logical implications of it. It takes somebody willing to take the emotions down a couple of pegs to apply the logic. And and the, I guess I'm I'm just groping with the logic is that uh, in order for somebody to deal with this uh, this orientation, this way that they are mapped, 
the best way to deal with that is to be in contact with other people who understand that and and that they can they can uh, i guess wh- what are what are some of the uh coping mechanisms or or like the the therapies to deal with this does it go away is it able to be uh you know uh diminished or does it need to find an outlet eventually um it's not like a uh tea kettle where if you don't let it let off steam it will blow up it, it, uh, yeah. it's not uh, it's not really like that uh, any uh long-term single person masturbate fantasize you know nobody's harmed nobody's hurt that's that uh some psychologists don't want to give somebody permission to do that because there are still some people who believe that having a fantasy in your head during an orgasm is what made them a pedophile in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no evidence to suggest that at all. It's the other way around. It's just it's only when they have pictures of what they want in their head that they're able to get an erection and masturbate uh, mm-hmm. at all. Uh so the uh, the therapies themse- uh, themselves, there's it's not like we have research to go on, and we sure as hell can't you know get a representative sample and then randomly assign them to two groups and only treat half. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just can't do that kind of an experiment. Uh, really, all we have to go by is what we know on basic general principles for how human behavior works, how criminal behavior works, and how stigmatized behavior works. And as I say, what we know most is that people are best able to keep themselves, you know, on the straight and narrow when they have a life worth protecting, when they have roots in the community, when they have friends, when they interact with people, when they have a job, when they have relationship, when they have a life protecting, they will put the effort in to protect it. So if we're smart, ha 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 ha. <laughs> we would facilitate the creation of those kinds of communities. Uh, Now, doing that face-to-face is really difficult because most of these people logically want to stay anonymous. That leaves the Internet. Mm -hmm. And it kind of comes back to that slippery old concept of meaning then. Um, If if somebody has a meaningful life and and there are certain components to having and building a meaningful life, then they will they will ensure that that life uh, main, is maintained meaningfully. Yeah. And and the way one of the founding ways that we have meaning is through being ourselves and being honest, being honestly ourselves. And the people uh, you were mentioning, people who came out even right down to their uh, AOA, their ages of attraction. Yeah. Uh, again, they say that in order to help, you know, when somebody is looking for, let's say, a role model just to let them know what their own experience was. And from the person who's offering themselves as a role model, uh, again, the situation is different, but it's very easy to see it as analogous to mine, uh, what mine was. They're mm. trying to pass it forward. You know, they came through, you know, my you know, childhood was tough enough. Can you imagine theirs? Yeah. But they came through it and came through it with an instinct of wanting to help other people who were coming through it. You know, that, that yeah. is exactly what motivated me early in my career. Mm-hmm. So to me, none of this is uh, if I just do my best to put myself in their shoes, all those behaviors make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, just down to when, you know, uh, some people. Uh, oh, uh, another famous example. Many of us coming out as gay say bye in the meantime. What do you mean? Uh, uh, we will say bisexual because we're not quite ready to be, you know, I still have a little bit of normal in me, you know, hmm. so, it, right. So there are some, the, the words have a certain meaning that, that sense of, uh, sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are technically, there are different terms that are used when people are attracted to different age ranges. 
uh, really they're used in technical purposes for people actually going through it. It's not important. Uh, so I think a lot of them use age of attraction just to say what their age of attraction is instead of the technical term. Yeah. Uh, and there are some people who are attracted to children in addition to attracted to adults. And hmm. so giving their full age of attra age range of attraction kind of helps describe what their experiences hmm. are. If they're attracted from, you know, 10 to 25 is different from somebody who's attracted from 10 to 14. Mm -hmm. The the thing that one of the things that makes pedophilia so distinct from the rest of the alphabet soup, I don't mean that derogatorily, but um, whereas uh, a homosexual um, can uh, like the pedophile, we can never allow them to act on their urges like that. And so when they come out, it's not a celebration of what they can do. Um, and, and I think that there's the extra complication in society accepting the pedophile um, that they, that doesn't have to take place in accepting the homosexual or the lesbian or the, the, the gay or the, the lesbian, the gay or the lesbian. We accept that pattern of behavior. We understand like as a liberal person, like that doesn't really harm anybody else. It doesn't really trample on my rights or anything. It's just it's different. It's not something that I'm attracted to. Actually, I, I might even find that activity a little bit repugnant. Even that's not bad, but I can I can I can accept you as who you are and and what you do in the world. A pedophile. How do I accept a person and make a distinction between their sexuality as as an orientation and their sexuality as a, as an action, as a behavior in the world? Like I cannot I cannot accept that that would be that's not acceptable for the pedophile to have a, to interact sexually with a child. Right. Uh, I think the crux of what, what you're asking is uh, really uh, uh, where uh, uh, you're making black and white where there exists a gray zone. And I say that very, very carefully. Uh, for example, uh, uh, what do, uh, uh, child pornography is probably the best example. They're not uh, touching a kid, right? But there's a kid, you know, being violated in the production of whatever the thing is. So, mm. okay, right. So that's off. Uh, now, what about text-based stories describing it or describing some imagined scenario? There's no victim. No one's hurt. It's pure imagination. It's masturbation material. Hmm. Right. Now, all of a sudden, I'm left with my, oh, that feels uncomfortable, but what's my principle before I'm ready to give up free speech? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's okay. a free speech okay. argument, but there's also, like, if you, I just, like, just reacting to that right now, like, if that material's out there and accessible, yeah. will that not normalize that behavior and then erode our... Normalize our, meaning? Meaning, like... We'll say, well, it doesn't really matter. 14's okay. 14's fine. Oh, well, 13's right. okay. Like, okay. won't there society... No 14. There is no 14. It's a four-minute-old story. There is no 14-year-old. Well, I'm saying, like, the, the outcome of having that material accessed and then passed yes. around openly, yes. will that not erode the protections that we have in, 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 our, in our society on how we behave towards children? Like, be, children are not to be sexualized. Uh, compare the realisticness and the encouragement one can get from tech spec stories and compare that to a video game. Hmm. Immersed, interpersonal, you know, virtual reality, murder. Hmm. That's okay, but a text-based story about sex, fictional, hmm. masturbation material, that's out. Well, okay. I don't have an ethical answer to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just pointing out the 
this seems what it seems that society has already decided where the line is and the line was fiction about murders okay fiction about this is not is that hmm. now words right all right now the <laughs> conversation about what exactly is the principle here and what is my own uh, own emotional reaction hmm. yeah that's such a <laughs> first uh now we have also you know, drawings of kids one step more sex dolls designed to look like kids one step more how about a sex robot that looks like is programmed to act like a kid mm-hmm. right all, all i'm doing is turning up the emotion the principle is identical there is no child here there is no victim hmm. there's no victim with text there's no victim with drawing doll robot the principle is identical there is no child being harmed i'm just but the more it really looks like a real kid the more it feels like a real kid yeah. right but the basic principle is the same i'm either going to, to decide this rationally or by emotion the only difference between these levels of fiction is how it's really easy to look at a doll that looks and sounds like a kid and it evokes yeah so why, so then the question is why i don't know how to respond Oh, Siri's been listening the whole time. <laughs> I put my teacup down and I accidentally put it down on the space bar, which activated blah, 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 blah. Okay. We're fine now. Uh, the audio went a little bit weird, but I can salvage it. The, the, I guess the, the, the next question, and I should, I should. Sure. What? Too bad. That was a good juncture. No, no. I mean, it's, it's all there. Um, I just wondering if Apple is now listening in on us, but um, the, the next question is why is, why do we have a aversion and a, a deep-seated aversion to sexualizing minors? Like, why um, is that there, and why is it important to uphold? Well, the again, you're asking non-scientific questions to a scientist. Yeah. It's hmm. uh, does I it mean, not have a? It, it has a well. Scientifically, psychologically, it has a. It, it has a. I'm sure, like a quantifiable effect on a child on a human's life to have sexual uh to be sexually molested to to have sexual encounters with an adult the again the research is more complicated than most people would appreciate uh what appears to cause the greatest harm and again i'm aware i'm making some very, very subtle points about which then people have understandably very, you know, uh, uh, enormous emotions. And I don't w- want to be misquoted saying something more extremely than I seem to. But the research seems to indicate that it's less the actual physical contact and more the pressure and the coercion and the techniques that the perpetrator uses in order to gain access to the kid. Hmm. It's the manipulation it's the threats. It's the uh, threats of what the perpetrator will do if the uh, if uh, uh, if the kid tells anybody. Those are the prolonged still on the kid's mind. Those seem to be the, the uh, uh, betrayal of not knowing or not being able to talk when other family members are present. As I say, the majority of these cases happen inside families. Hmm. So it's that kind of psychological manipulation surrounding the physical abuse that does uh, that does the primary psychological damage now as i said that, that's 
something that requires some expansion so as not to be misinterpreted, uh, so as not to be misinterpreted. I am not talking about, you know, the profoundly violent rape uh, rapes, you know, the forced penetrations of Boris, he's, you know, unable to, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the copper field kissing inappropriate, you know, grossly abusive, full weight of the law should be there, but not, you know, causing great physical trauma of the, uh, uh, on the kid. Uh, as I say, you know, it's very strange to be taking child abuse and saying, oh, that's not so black and white. But when one is looking uh, when one is looking for what causes what in trauma, again, if it's going to actually treat it, one has to realize that the majority of this is really from the manipulation of the psychological stuff that went on rather than the physical touching even though most adults imagination is that oh it, you know we imagine what a rape of an adult would be oh it's physically traumatic and we start projecting what we think it was like from the kid's point of view but that's not really that what that generally is not the kid's point of view with exceptions that does happen and we need to deal with them but they are the exception and we need to treat those as the exceptions hmm. okay um, I, I was just uh, so I, I guess I can't get like a, a an ought from you. Um, I was just uh, I was I was entering into like a very fraught conversation. Like, can we define can we define why these laws will m be maintained in place? That 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 the the structure of our society is that you cannot you cannot have sexual encounters with minors and and. That, but that's different. And like what you're proposing is that the sexualization of of a minor as a as a imagined entity is different than a sexual action with a minor. Um, you can't protect a kid who doesn't exist. Yeah. But I guess like even the revulsion is so deep that the sexualization itself is still. Uh, well, again, the sexualization. Uh, I'm at the limit of what the science can say. And, and mm. as you know, it's the sexualization, you know, outside of physical trauma, you know, is hard to measure. But we, you know, in our field, we're very good at measuring psychological trauma and we can, you know, we're seeing what goes with uh, what goes with what. Uh, my greatest caution is in general to, you know, treat the heinous cases as the heinous cases, but you can't treat every single case as if it's the worst kind of case. Uh, the better I understand your question about, you know, why society does what it does, again, nerd brain says, well, there's the evolutionary argument, you know, how things have started, you know, on the, the uh, on the plains of Africa, all the way up through Western civilization. But a lot of the end point where we are now is, I don't think this has anything to do with the protection of children. I think this has the protection to do with political lives. I think this is people, you know, trying to look good by being bad to the bad guys and who the heck is going to defend the bad guys. And the mm. fact that a lot of these, you know, gut reaction policies are making things worse. Hmm. Nobody's going to point that out because they're afraid of being mistaken to be sympathetic for a pedophile, even though the ones who look sympathetic are actually do, probably statistically, predictably doing more to prevent it than the people who keep showing, you know, the worst that they can have at anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but as I say, you know, people okay. average do not have the skin that I do to be able to go with, I want what the truth is, even if it's not popular. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, society, for its unwillingness to tolerate thought, is making the problem worse. We yeah, I guess the fear is the opportunities to fix things, but yeah. people are just too afraid of looking bad.
Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I guess what I was trying to voice is that there might be a worry that in order, in accepting the pedophile um, in the way that, that you've described a pedophile is, um, I guess one of the gut reactions is that if I accept the pedophile, then I'm normalizing or I'm accepting their behavior and I cannot accept that behavior. Uh, and, I, I think that's. That's the same. That's just a different way of pointing out that people take pedophilia and child molestation as uh, uh, as synonyms. Okay. That yeah. they, you know, that condoning one is condoning the other. That that you know, rejecting one is rejecting uh, rejecting the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, most people, you know, depending on the uh, uh, circumstance in which somebody poses the question, uh, I, I, you know, and I don't think expert any expert is arguing anything other than the golden rule. What would you want if you were the one, no fault mm-hmm. of your born with this and just figured it out by yourself? Mm-hmm. What would you want us to do? Mm-hmm. I guess there's no answers, <laughs> but uh, I, you, other than, well, than looking right at the facts, carefully, patiently, and I guess with a bit of humility, like which is just not judging, just looking at things and going I, forward. Tap your inner Vulcan. <laughs> uh, and I mean, on the policy level, there's a lot of bad things that have gone into place that, you know, would do a lot of good if we simply remove them because they seem to be, you know, preventing people from reintegrating and developing a healthy, uh, healthy life. And they're exquisitely expensive. And there's no evidence that they have reduced rates of, uh, of molestation at all. What are you uh, talking about? Like uh, mandatory registry? Rep- uh, the registries, expensive, not particularly accurate, and no evidence to show that they work. Uh, residency restrictions, which have, you know, talk about uh, gerrymandering for how they divide political districts. They have essentially, you know, designed these things so that it's not possible for anybody to live any place. Oh, I think there was a famous case in Florida. Uh, that by the time they drew out all of these districting, the only places that one was allowed to be was actually in a swamp in the Everglades or in a, a, or in a mansion in Boca Raton. Those were the only places left. Huh. Uh, right, so it's, these are not, you know, helping a person integrate into society, get a job you know, and do what we, like I said, through decades of research on criminality, uh, criminology, what, what we know works best. Uh, mandatory reporting. If some guy, you know, figures out he's attracted to kids and wants to come in to the doctor to get whatever, sex drive reducing medications, psychological skills, whatever, we want him to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, mandatory reporting has put an end to that. Oh, so, so the psychologist has to, like, report it to the law and then the law ends up messing with that person's life. Is that what? Or, that's what happens in practice. Uh, in, in practice, most psychologists, you know, don't have training in this kind of thing and don't have a meaningful assessment of risk. And so they report the person just in case. Mm. Now, they don't have to, but they will just in case because mm. they're protected if they report and they're not protected if they don't report. Hmm. So they just reflexively report even if they don't have to. So, of course, the pedophiles know this. They're going to look this up before they, you know, tell anything uh, before they tell anybody anything. So they so in practice, they just don't come in. So instead of having a, a, a pedophile out in society getting sex drive, reducing medications and whatever support or whatever, instead we have pedophiles circulating in society, receiving no supervision whatsoever. There, everybody feel better? Hmm. Right. Just scaling back the insane things that were done would help. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Is there um is there like a web portal where where your work uh, is is seated or situated? Is there a place that I can send people if they're interested sure, yeah, more in what you're doing? All right. Dot com. Org. Oh, okay, you're in org. Yes, isn't that fancy? Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it gives you special powers. <laughs> uh, no, it just says that I'm an NPR listener. <laughs> uh, and then I did purchase jamescantor.com and I redirected it towards .org. Okay. And do you have, um, are there any films or videos that, that are good resources to, to follow up on, on what we're talking about here? Uh, yes. There was like a, CBC did a wonderful docu uh, documentary following several actual pedophiles and featuring a lot of my research in it. Uh, it's called I Pedophile. I Pedophile. Uh, 2016, I think it came out. Okay. And that, that's a series? Uh, no, it, uh, or a film or something? Well, it, it, it was a documentary that okay. was broadcast as part of their documentary series, uh, okay. but it's not like it was an episode in a, in a TV series. But just okay. the title should get you to it. Okay, excellent. I'll, it, I'll it was nominated for, uh, for Best Documentary. So I got to me scientists in a red carpet tuxedo. It was a dream come true. <laughs> you know, so as we're sitting in the audience, you know, and they're reading the nominees, you know, it was whatever, you know, laudable topic, you know, starving children, da, 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 and then, you know, I pedophile. You could hear the hesitation in the audience. Do I applaud for this? <laughs> oh, jeez. Talk about fear of normalizing. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's that must have been a hilariously awkward moment to be in. Story of my life. <laughs>